Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 9 has been a chapter that's been filled with healing. A paralytic in verses 1 through 8. A dead girl comes back to life in verses eight through nine, 18 and 19. A sick woman in verses 20 through 22. Two blind men in verses 27 through 31. A demon-possessed mute in verses 32 and 34. And then we see a reiteration of many more in verse 37. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus has issued a proclamation of the divine kingdom. In chapters 8 and 9, we see a revelation of the king's power in a series of miracles. And it now makes sense that the focus will shift. The focus of Jesus will turn to the propagation of the gospel of the kingdom. Beginning here in chapter 9, verse 35, it will continue through chapter 10. Chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now Matthew will spotlight the king's mission in verse 35. His compassion in verse 36. His vision in verses 37 through 38. Jesus begins to travel in the region. He will preach. He will teach. He will heal. Moved by compassion, the Lord will issue a command. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. As always, Jesus will provide a solution. He'll say, pray. Pray that God will send forth laborers into the field. So we begin with the king's ministry. Look at verse 35. It says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. This first verse was given to us earlier in chapter 4, verse 23. For those of you who have been with us for quite some time, this was back in December, where in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read, and Jesus went about all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. That particular passage served as the introduction, if you will, to the Sermon on the Mount, which would follow in chapter 5, 6, and 7. This verse will serve as an introduction to this new section, what we might call the sermon on the mission. But the sermon on the mission is less about words and more about works. It has a great deal more to do with what Jesus has to say and what Jesus will do. We might think of Jesus's mission in four ways from this particular text. He outlines, number one, a method. He went forth. Number two, it's going to describe his mission field. He went everywhere. Number three, it's going to describe his work, teaching, preaching, healing. And number four, it's going to describe his message, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And so right from the start, the picture is of Jesus in Capernaum, 
making his way around the Sea of Galilee to the cities and the villages surrounding the lake and the population in the area. Jesus teaches in their synagogues or meeting places or assembly halls. These synagogues, teaching places, and assembly halls were used by the popular culture for meetings, but for also for, for prayer and for gatherings. It was the place where information was disseminated. Preaching is a reference to the gospel of the kingdom. The preaching would also include an invitation. People have asked me over and over again, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? Teaching is a presentation of the truth. Presentation is an invitation to accept that truth. So we might think of teaching as imparting information, hopefully helpful information. And then preaching is urging you to take the information that you've learned and use it in a practical way or, or in a biblical way or in a God-honoring way. So, Jesus will continue his ministry. Preaching, teaching, healing, every sickness, every disease among the people. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, in the Galilee region, even a generation after the war that took place with Rome, there were some 200 cities and, and villages in the Galilee. Let me help you understand the, the geography just for a moment. The Galilee was about 40 miles long and about 70 miles wide. If we flip it on its axis, if you will, about length and width, Imagine an area that would span from Colorado Springs to Fort Collins and then extend east about 40 miles. And you'll get an idea of the population that he's talking about. According to Josephus, in his own writings, he says, quote, The cities are numerous and the multitudes of villages are everywhere, crowded with men, owing to the fertility of the soil, so that the smallest of them contain about 15,000 inhabitants, unquote. By Josephus's estimate, there may have been as many as 3 million people living in the region. Now again, I want you to put that in perspective. There's about 3.5 million people living in the state of Colorado. Cities were differentiated from villages in the presence or the absence of walls. Cities had fortifications. Typically, villages were unwalled. Why is this important even in our study or in our thinking about what it is that we're reading? The point isn't about cities or walls or geography or even about population. The point that Matthew is trying to make is that no place is too big or too small for the ministry of Jesus. Again, if we think about our own location and you say, look, I'm only going to minister if it's Fort Collins. I'm going to only minister if it's Denver. I'm only going to minister if it's Colorado Springs. I'm only going to minister where there's, where there's a huge amount of people. That wouldn't be true. Jesus will go into the highways. Jesus will go into the byways. And again, this becomes another important point of the passage that we're reading. Jesus went out. Jesus didn't sit back, and neither should we, and that's the point. Jesus didn't wait for the people to come to him. He went out to them. And by all means, I am grateful, grateful, grateful for people coming to the church, and I hope you invite your family and your friends to church. I hope you beat the bushes. I hope you go to your schools and, and the place where you work and the things that you're doing. But here is part of the point. Jesus will later say, after his death and after his resurrection, he'll instruct the disciples. He'll say, go ye therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go, he says, not stay. 
He says, go and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded to you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. His mission field, if you actually read the New Testament, it's everywhere. He'll go north. He'll go south. He'll go into the ghetto. He'll go into the slum. He'll go into the countryside. We find Jesus on a mountaintop. We find him in a synagogue. We find him on the seashore. We find him in the graveyard. We find him in people's homes. We find him in the places where people are reluctant to go. We find him in difficult places, in small places, occupied by the poor and the rich. And this is interesting to me because our culture is trying to set up Jesus free zones. You see, we live in a culture and a society that's more and more saying, Look, you're a Christian and it's okay for you to be a Christian. And you know what? Go to your church and walk in the door and walk into the room and sit in the seat and be a Christian in your seat. But guess what? Our school is a Jesus-free zone. Our government is a a Jesus-free zone. Our commerce is a Jesus-free zone. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus wants us to go. Now remember, it's going to take two forms. A place where we are welcome. And a place where we are less than welcome. And once again, Jesus goes to these places. Jesus performs powerful acts of healing that point to his messianic credentials. And again, it also reminds us of the accusation that was made earlier in the text by the religious leaders who basically accused Jesus of having supernatural abilities by the power of demons and by the power of Satan. And what these miracles do is reinforce his claims And it exposes the accusations of the Pharisees for what they are, sinister. So what does it mean that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom? I'm going to suggest to you what many Bible teachers have suggested. That Jesus is offering himself to the nation. In this first portion, remember... The gospel, the good news about God comes to the Jew first. The good news comes to the Jew and to the Jewish people and to the Jewish nation. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had made promises to Judah and he had made promises to David. He had made promises that a king would come and that a Messiah would come and that he would be that king and he presents himself as their king. And I'm also going to suggest to you that it is true that later in chapter 10, Jesus will send his disciples to preach the same gospel of the kingdom and perform the same miracles in chapter 10 verses 5 through eight. So are we to share that same commission? Are we extending an invitation for Jews and the modern state of Israel to accept Jesus as their king or the nation of Israel to, to, to receive Jesus as king? Not really. That's not what we're doing. Are we claiming the ability to perform miracles to confirm the invitation is real and available? That's not what we're claiming. We're not claiming that we have the ability to do miracles, but here's what we are claiming. We are claiming that Jesus is the king and that he is the Lord and that Jesus is the king of every single life and that Jesus has the ability to powerfully forgive, to wash and cleanse, to heal and reconcile. I think of the of the scripture and the song that it's based on. That Jesus will lead his flock like a shepherd. That he'll carry them in his arms. That he'll gather them to his bosom. He'll gently lead those who are with young. 
I believe Jesus is appealing to the Jews as a people of God, as a nation of God to repent of their sin and to accept him as their rightful ruler, as the king and the Lord and the savior. And I believe if the Jews would have embraced Jesus as Lord and king, the hall of human history would have unfolded quite differently. I believe Jesus would still have been crucified. I believe that he would still have risen from the de dead. But I, and I also believe that the Jews would have had their kingdom after a very short time of tribulation, but the opposition to Jesus is going to increase. The hostility and the anger is going to increase. Jesus will insist on repentance. He'll insist on a new heart. The religious leaders will grow in their hatred, grow in their bitterness towards the people, particularly for the people who hear his, his message with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. Just like for some of you, you hear the message of hope, you receive it with joy and blessing and thanksgiving. And then the opposition, the bitterness and the angry anger grows in your home. It might even grow from your husband or your wife from your children or your grandchildren or the popular culture, and they can't stand it. And the preaching and the teaching of Jesus always included at least two elements. The elements would have been spiritual responsibility towards the true and the living God of Israel and then a hope of that kingdom. So he would have been talking about the future kingdom that's coming. And he would have talked about the reality of what God wants to do in the present based on that future kingdom. And by the way, this becomes the central message of pastors and teachers. The central message of pastors and teachers, we're to teach and preach the gospel, which is the good news. It's the gospel. We exist in part to worship God. We exist in part to proclaim and teach the truth of God's word. We communicate the Bible's central message. The Bible's central message is the good news of the gospel. And by the way, when we use the word the message, or we use the term the gospel, or we use the term the good news, we mean God's saving activity, what God does to save through the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, God's unique son, the healing miracles were previews of coming attractions in a future kingdom that will make its way to us. Just like when you go to the movies, when you go to the movies and, and you get there a little bit early so you can see the coming attractions that are going to be playing in the theaters, these healings that you've witnessed in chapter nine that he talks about here become a type and a picture of what you can expect when Jesus shows up preaching isn't enough teaching isn't enough living isn't enough in all of Jesus's vision and mission, it's going to always include preaching. It's going to always include teaching and it's going to always include doing. And so a ministry that's just marked by preaching alone or teaching alone will miss the point of Jesus's mission. Jesus will speak but even as Jesus speaks, Jesus will also invite people to believe his message and then they will invite him to come to him. And so we, we go from the mission to compassion. Look what it says in verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. When we see Jesus in the circumstance, look what it says. He sees the multitudes or the crowds. The word translated compassion is a very long Greek word. It's actually a verb and it's a compound word. 
that's composed of a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. It's splunkness thesis. The word is long, but it means to be moved inwardly. It incorporates several powerful internal emotional feelings. Some people have used words like tender mercies, affection, pity, empathy to describe these emotions. But I think it carries something, it carries all of those ideas, but something even deeper. It carries with it the idea of being touched internally in the deepest way possible. It's the deepest place of a person's emotional being. It carries with it the idea of something visceral, emotional. Splankna is the, is the noun form of this verb. When we use the expression in our own culture and society, when something happens to us, has anyone, have you ever said or has anyone ever said to you, I felt like I was kicked in my guts. This is exactly the word. It means, it means an internal, deep, emotional feeling that leaves you physically engaged, if you want to use that term. The Lord Jesus would sometimes be moved to literal tears over the plight of sinners. I heard someone once define this word as your pain in my heart. I remember a, a story that, that, used to, that took place over a hundred years ago of, a, of an attorney who was in Philadelphia and he had gone to school with a particular person and he found himself in a particular place and a, and a particular person caught his eye and he looked strangely familiar but his hair, hair was dirty and matted, his face was covered with grime, his clothing was tattered and he goes, you look so familiar to me, don't I know you? He goes, you, we should, we were... You were on the floor above me in college. You were on the upper floor and I was on the, on the bottom floor. We, we saw each other almost on a daily basis. He goes, I don't need to know what's happened to you. I don't really care about the past or how you find yourself in the position you find yourself in. God loves you. He cares about you. Your life doesn't have to be this way. He pulled out his billfold. This is a day when you could write a check, and he would write a check, and he wrote a check for $100. And the poor man took the check to the bank, and as he was coming up on the bank, he comes to the door, he sees his reflection in the mirror, he sees his dirty hair, he sees the dirt on his face, he sees his tattered clothing, he sees the filthiness that, that is his life, and he, he's thinking to himself, they're not going to cash this check, they're going to think I stole the check, they're going to think I forged his signature, and he put the check back in his tattered clothes, and he walked away, and the next day he walked to the place where he was begging, the attorney happened to be there and he goes what did you do with the money did you drink it did you already get rid of it he goes no I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to cash your check I thought for certain that they would say he stole the check and he forged the signature and he said you know what he said your appearance and your clothes and your circumstances aren't what make that check good. The thing that makes it good is my signature on that check. If you will cash it, it will work. And that's the illustration. For the people who look at Jesus and look to Jesus and believe Jesus. If you read the text and you only conclude that Jesus feels sorry for people, then you would miss the point. Paul will use the exact same word when he writes in Romans chapter 8 verse 35. Who will separate us from the love? Read compassion. Read splankna of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103 verse 13, like a father pities his children, so the Lord has pity on them who fear him. 
Jesus cares. Dr. Paul Brand spent many years as a medical missionary among the most diseased people on the planet Earth. His specialty, lepers and leprosy. He writes, quote, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind, the skin of the person with leprosy, the legs of the cripple. He writes, I've sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed. Many of them must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary and smelly. With his power, he could have easily waved a magic wand, but he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly to crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love and warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not really demonstrate love to a crowd. For love always involves touching, unquote. You see, compassion isn't just simply feeling something inside of yourself. It has to be a willingness to do something with that feeling. The, this response on the part of the Lord was in part due to the broken condition that Jesus encountered. And so he goes out, and just like when you go out, you're going to encounter broken people. You see, this is why people think, well, the church is safe. How broken can the people be inside the church? And I, and I know what you're thinking, wow, pretty broken. We actually don't have to go far to find broken people. And Matthew will use two descriptive terms. Look in the text. They were weary. And he uses the term scattered. Again, the word weary is an impressive word in the original language. It too is a long word and a compound word that doesn't translate very well with just a singular word. They were weary means almost ready to faint. It carries with it the idea of exhaustion. The implication is you've done something or something is, is happening and you grow weary, you lose heart, you lack courage. It carries with it the idea of being disoriented or bewildered. The word was used to describe a person who was beaten and battered and scarred from a constant struggle. The word was used to describe someone who had been beaten almost to the point of death, who was the subject of constant abuse, constant insult, so much abuse and so much insult that they, that they just simply can't take it anymore. And the second word, scattered, means to be pushed aside, or to be cast out, or to be laid low. I'm trying to think of a modern expression that captures the meaning. It carries with it the idea of pushing someone into the dirt. And whenever they try to get up, you push them back down again. Or to be thrown into the dirt. The idea is to be dejected or, or hopeless. Being scattered might include the conditions that come from, a, a, again, an out, a, a life that's been informed by outside forces that seem to manipulate you. The idea of drug abuse or alcohol abuse. The idea of being laid low by outside forces like, like a hurricane or, or a tragedy or an illness. But the idea is that the hurricane, the tragedy, the illness has pushed you and pushed you and pushed you aside. The modern image might be a refugee who's being driven away from their, their home and their family and their circumstance. They've been driven away by either a hur hurricane or an earthquake or or, or or war or the collapse of some sort of governmental system. It's where you have no choice but to go away from the source of pain. And clearly there's a crisis of leadership. 
Jesus sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Leaderless. So what do all of these words have in common? They describe isolation. They describe destitution. They describe weary, fainting, bewildered, leaderless. And this is important because the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the people who were supposed to be the shepherds, the people who were supposed to care for them, love them, encourage them, were nowhere to be found. And so the people were were left feeling hopeless and helpless. I, I, I want you to think this through. In a world where you're supposed to feel safe and secure, they were desperate and hurt. And Jesus' heart broke. You know, cults and even some churches will offer a gospel or a Jesus who doesn't really care. He may or may not be kind in their way of thinking. But they may have latched on to a gospel that is really not the gospel. It isn't the gospel of God's love and grace and mercy or the problem of sin and the necessity of a savior, a personal savior. As a matter of fact, many of them will try to keep you away from your sin or deny your sin or pretend that it's not real or that Jesus isn't the solution to the problem of sin. And later in John chapter 10, verses one, and then again in verse five, Jesus would call people who distort and pervert the gospel, he would call them thieves and robbers. It's not simply to care about people who are hurt, it's to have the right solution to their problem. And so compare that with Jesus' words. Come to me, he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has a mission and Jesus has compassion. He cares for them. And make no mistake about it. You might have even the right theology. You might embrace the right mission. You might have in mind the right words to say to the right people. But if your heart is disconnected from their circumstances, the chances are you're going to have less than an appropriate impact. Jesus is motivated by compassion and Jesus is motivated by a person's lost condition. It begs the question, are you? Is that what motivates you? Someone once wrote, let me look on the crowd as my savior did till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me view with pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, but deepest in the being of God, holding it in its great energizing might, both holiness and righteousness is love and compassion. God said, according to Hosea, how shall I give up Ephraim or Ephraim? It is out of love, which inspirited the or inspirited the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided, unquote. It was his way of saying, he's motivated because he cares. The great Puritan writer Thomas Watson some 400 plus years ago said, we may force our Lord to punish us, but we'll never have to force him to love us, unquote. Wow is right. You have to work hard 
to invite his discipline. He's generous with his love. I gotta tell you something, I loved being a parent and I loved my children. But there's something about being a grandparent that that's what this passage reminds me of. My grandchild is gonna have to work hard, really hard to get me to discipline him or her. Not a single one of them have to beg me to love them. It never happens. Because it's always true. And you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to work really hard to find a way to antagonize, alienate, invite God's discipline. He's looking for a way to love you and care about you. He has compassion for you. And look at the king's vision. Look what it says in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest of who? Hurt, desperate, needy people who need to hear the message. Embrace the vision. Who necessitate healing. As a matter of fact, the text literally reads in the original language, then Jesus said, literally, says now. It's in the present tense and emphatic. Jesus says now to his disciples, the harvest is huge, but there are actually hardly any workers. The task seems hopeless. The numbers seem without end. There is many people, no shepherd. What's interesting is Jesus changes the metaphor from wheat to sheep. The harvest is plentiful. Children, young people, men, women. So what are we to make of the illustration? In agriculture, there are times of plowing the field. There's a time to plant the seed. There's a time to water the crop. There's a time to cultivate the crop. There's a time to harvest the crop. Now remember what we've already talked about. The Galilee had an abundance of water. It served as the bread basket for the region. Jesus likens the people of the region as ready to hear the gospel and receive the gospel. Jesus sees them like overripe fruit, wasting. Because again, even that word harvest itself is suggestive. The word itself is suggestive. The idea is that a plow has already gone through. A seed has already been planted. A time of cultivation has taken place. And a time of harvest has now come upon us. And we're left with the impression that this is a harvest that's deeply desired. This isn't a job that he has to do because that's his job. It's one that's deeply desired because this is the harvest of souls for salvation. In another time, the great Bible teacher W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote, quote, It is surely due to a lack of spiritual insight. That we fail to realize how much men are hungering for God. We're apt instead to judge hastily by cold or hostile exteriors and talk of hardness of soil and the need for plowing and planting when our master sees crops wasting for lack of reapers, unquote. And the point of that quote and this message is in part that you might look at a person who's hostile towards you, dark, distant, cold, arm's length, and you think, that person isn't going to get saved anytime soon. Someone once said, pick up a rock, throw it into a pack of dogs, and you hear one yelp. Who is the dog that's just howled? The one that got hit, the one that got hit with a rock. Sometimes the person who is so angry and so upset, the person who clenches their fist and their face turns red and they start to get to tremble because they're so angry with you because you've been talking about God and you've been talking about Jesus and you've been talking about love. They go, you gotta, you gotta stop it. You gotta stop talking like that. Why? I'm getting all upset. Why? I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) 
I've told you many times in high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. They would just, they would go, they would just, let's find a person in our school, the person most likely to go to hell, Gino Geraci. Person who hates Christians the most, Gino Geraci. Person antagonistic and even hostile, Gino Geraci. Thank God there was someone who looked past the wickedness and the hostility and began to pray for me and go, God, just, God, work on him. God, help him. God, move on his, on his soul. But guess what? Somebody had to invite me. Someone had to actually invite me to a Christian concert to hear the gospel. That's part of the point. What about us? Are we lacking spiritual discernment or judgment? Have we failed to realize just how much people are hungering for God? Have we interpreted apathy, hostility, or indifference, and we've, we've failed to recognize the harvest is right before us? What do you think? Are some people oblivious to the fact that they're lost? At my oldest son's high school graduation, they picked as their class song, U2's, We Still Haven't Found What We're Looking For. We still haven't found what we're looking for. They march through school. They march in their classroom. They walk around. They do whatever it is that they do. And they still haven't found what they're looking for because the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness and the loneliness and the guilt and, and the separation from God is palpable. And the Bible, by the way, speaks of two harvests. This one, a harvest of labor, and another harvest, a harvest of life. Jesus will talk about this harvest here and another harvest in chapter 13 of a future judgment. But this harvest and that harvest have something in common. And that is that unless this harvest takes place in chapter 9, the harvest in chapter 13 will never take place. And so in verse 38, Jesus says, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So why do we pray the Lord of the harvest? Because the need is great. Way beyond the capacity of any given person. Why do we pray? Because necessity and opportunity and urgency have come together under his divine leadership. Why do we pray? Because the need is always greater than the workforce. William MacDonald points out, quote, The Lord Jesus told the disciples to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice here that the need doesn't constitute a call. Workers should not go until they are sent, unquote. And that's another reason why you need to pray. It's his harvest. Now remember what I said to you earlier. If you don't have his vision, if you don't understand his mission, if you don't share his compassion, then the chances are you're not sent. I love the message of the gospel. That's great. Do you love these people? Do you care about them? Does your heart break for them? Jesus wants your help. Jesus wants to enlist people in the work of the harvest. There are human workers who work now. There will be angelic workers who will do the work later. That's another difference between the harvest that's supposed to take place right now and the harvest that will take place later. In this harvest... Jesus uses men and women. And the next harvest, he's going to use angels. Billy Graham rightly said, God didn't send me to preach to the generation that went before me. He didn't send me to preach to the generation that went after me. God sent me to this generation. And he's right. 
Each and every person has to take up the challenge and the mantle. And don't think for a moment when Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest, that your prayers determine the outcome of the harvest or that your prayers, that God is dependent on your prayers or that God is dependent on human beings. You would be absolutely wrong. In one sense, our prayers greatly matter. In another sense, God's sovereign grace will not be hindered by man's failure to pray or his expression of prayer. Then why pray? Because salvation is first and foremost the expression of Jesus's heart of compassion and Jesus's message according to Jesus's sovereign will. And so when Jesus invites you to pray, he invites you to pray that you will believe Believe his message and embrace his heart and submit to God's sovereign will. And the harvest has to be reaped in its season. So who is the Lord of the harvest? The Lord only indirectly suggests who it might be. We know that it has to be one of three. The Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Those are the only possible candidates. Some think it's the Holy Spirit, but in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus himself will send out the disciples. Jesus is the Lord of global evangelism. Jesus is the Lord of personal evangelism. Remember what I said, one harvest is present, one harvest is future, but they're intimately connected to one another. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, there's this interesting statement. Jesus says about this harvest in the future. He talks about tares and wheat. He talks about a mustard seed and leaven. He talks about sowing the seed and the good, and the, and the good seed, that the field is the world, that the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares, the sons of the wicked one. Jesus says the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels in chapter 13, verse 30. Let them both grow together, he says, until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Sometimes the harvest means fruit, ripe fruit. Sometimes it means judgment. The Bible seems to indicate there's a time there's a time that's extended for people to enter into a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go far to find hurting people, sick people, diseased people, verse 35, weary, scattered, leaderless people in verse 37. You know where they are. They're in your home. They're in your school. They're in hospitals and hotels. They're in movie theaters and jail cells. They're, in, they're even in churches. And whether or not we're willing to admit it, they're facing judgment. Jesus was motivated by the very, very fact that a real judgment would take place in the not too distant future and Jesus will minister with vision he will minister with compassion he will minister long hours he will continue the work until the mission of redemption is complete Jesus knows when it's all going to unfold when it's all going to come to a dramatic end and so what's our concern, this generation? What's our prayer, laborers? What's our commitment, surrender to his call? What's our dedication, follow him? Follow him. Because you see, the truth is, if you pray for him, and you pray the Lord of the harvest, he might suggest you. He might suggest that you go into your school, 
into your business, into this world. The harvest needs those who are willing to work. Why aren't there more laborers? I think you know the answer. It's because some reject the call of God. Some postpone the call of God. Some deny the call of God. Some want a profession instead of the call. And some are satisfied with religion rather than the call. But make no mistake about it. The Lord is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. No man has the right to harvest using his own message, his own ideas, or having self-deployed. You need to be sent. And you need to be sent in a way that reflects his mission, his vision, his compassion. Because it's the gospel of the kingdom that's to be preached. In the next chapter, we're going to focus on how these disciples will take what Jesus has said and put it into action. But for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father. In obedience to what you've just asked us to do, we're going to pray the Lord of the harvest. Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would strip away our mission and that we would embrace your mission. That, Lord, you would confront our vision and then replace it with your own. And Lord, we pray that our compassion would be one that reflects the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the care of Jesus, a willingness to preach and teach, but also to do, to heal, to bind up the brokenhearted, to minister the people who have been shoved around and then shoved into the dirt and who feel like they have no place to go. Lord, we pray that we would extend the hand of hope and healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.